So I want to talk about prayer, and really just to encourage us to pray. Prayer is powerful. Prayer is powerful. I want to tell you a story that I promise you is relevant. A few years ago, uh, I was a new father, had a little baby in arms, Rafe, and uh, a toddler, slightly older than a toddler, maybe Finley. And uh, we were broke. My wife had just stopped working to, to look after the kids, and I was working for the church. There wasn't any money in the bank particularly, which was fine until Anna's brother decided to marry a Swedish girl and get married in Sweden. So I need to take the whole family to Sweden for this wedding without any money. And it's not like you can opt out because it's my wife's brother's wedding. So we did all that we can to, could to scrape together the airfare. Someone sorted out some accommodation for us in Sweden, which was going to be free or almost free. And it was kind of like a, a flat that we could stay in. So that was great. And at the same time, we were having some work done on the house, which is also why we were broke. And so what we decided to do was the, the builders would come in on the day that we left for this trip. And then they would do the work and be gone by the time we got back. So we got to the airport about six o'clock in the morning, which is really stressful with a young family and having to leave the house so that builders can come in. And we missed our flight. We missed our flight because the queues were so long. We got to the front of the queue and they said, there's a problem with your paperwork. Go and get it printed. Join another queue. Come back. It's gone. There's, there's, no, there's no coming back. Um, Anna's parents stepped in on the phone and said, we'll buy you another flight, but the next flight doesn't leave till nine o'clock tonight. We can't go back to our house because the builders are there, and we put our car in long-term parking, which means it's probably, you know, somewhere else by now. So we're sitting in Stansted Airport for however long that is, with a baby and a, and a toddler. Um, I go to the toilet, come back, go, oh, where's my wallet? lost my wallet, managed to get it back from uh, lost property a bit later in the day, got on the airplane, got to Sweden, arrived early hours of the morning to, to, the, to come to this flat. It turned out this flat was a, basically a one-room basement with a bunk bed and they had borrowed a travel cot from someone. So my wife, who's breastfeeding, sleeps on the top of the bunk bed, baby in the travel cot. I'm on the downstairs bit with my little son. And it's summer in Sweden. So even though the, 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 the window is only about this big, sunlight is pouring in. So I, I lean over the travel cot to, to try and block out the sun and crack the travel cot breaks. And once the travel cot's broken, you can't use it because the bottom sags. So we had to try and find toilet paper, I think, or something to try and lift it up from underneath. And when we got up in the morning, Anna had had such a restless night. We got up really early, really early, you know, really early. And 
I'm with a toddler, trying to keep the toddler quiet so that Anna could get maybe at least an hour's sleep. And the only choice is to kind of go out of the room, because there's only one room. And so we go to the local, local supermarket, which isn't even open. So we're sitting there, waiting for the supermarket to open. Then the supermarket opens, and we go inside and just look at vegetables. <laughs> then we had to come back and confess to this person... I'm really sorry, but we broke your travel cot on the first night. And she said, oh, actually, that's not my travel cot. I borrowed it from someone without asking. So we had to go and confess this to that person. They didn't mind. They were very gracious. Then we had to go to the wedding, which was someone else. And the person said, this is, a, this is a, an important key you've got for this flat, so you need to put it in this slot when you go. So we put it in this slot, left... The travel up there was terrible because we got into the wrong cart and the train. And they said, they can't have any kids in this train. You have to take your kids down to the kids section. But the pram won't go through the alleyways. So you have to leave the pram at one end. And I take the kids down the other end. And, and, and it's basically 100 people on this train and 99 of them are in the kids' carriage. So there's not even anywhere to sit, even though two-thirds of the train is empty. So two hours of that is quite stressful get to the wedding, their kids are kicking off, so I'm basically outside for the whole service, just looking after the kids. But Anna has got to the wedding. Get a text, your granddad's died. Really sad. Get back to the flat where we're staying, and they said, um, where's the key? Why did you take the key? No, we didn't take the key. We left the key in the slot. No, the key's not there. You, you've, it's been stolen, and that's a universal key, all the locks in this block of flats need to be changed, and that's going to be about £4,000. We, we need to do it now. Just as we were having that conversation, someone walked past and said, oh, I saw the key, here it is, I put it away for safekeeping. <laughs> the day before we go back to England, Anna looks at the little baby and says, I think they've got chicken pox. But we cannot... We have to get home, so you're not really supposed to do that. But in the airport, they, they, they invited us through, check your passports, go down the gangway to get on the plane. Only you don't get on the plane always, do you? Sometimes you have to stand in, an, in a corridor or on a stairwell or something like that. We had to stand in a stairwell for two hours. We got home to find that the builders had locked our cat in our bedroom and there was poo and blood everywhere and all our bed spreads were ripped to shreds, the curtains were ripped to shreds and the builders hadn't cleaned up yet because they thought we had more time. So it was just a building site. <laughs> I, I'm a great dad. And I said to my little son, Finley, I'm so sorry. That was such a nightmare. And he, he was like, what? I loved it. <laughs> I spent the whole time with you. We sat in an airport all day watching airplanes. We slept in the same bed for the whole holiday. We went around supermarkets, just me and you. We were on a train together. 
Prayer is about a relationship. My son loved being with me. As far as he was concerned, playing with the little light on my watch through the night was great fun. (laughs) Because he got to be with me. And although I was feeling stressed and feeling like a terrible father and a terrible husband, he just loved being with me. Prayer is about relationship. When the disciples asked Jesus to teach us how to pray, he said, Our Father. Our Father. And all the way through Matthew, Jesus seems to go out of his way to talk about the Father. We have a Father we get to be with. So we can be confident in prayer. Confident in prayer because we have a Father. Jesus teaches us, when you pray, say, our Father. And God isn't an incompetent dad who's skint. He's the king of the universe. He's God Almighty. I remember once going to my dad. I was an adult by then. And I needed, probably needed money for a house or something. And I went to my dad and I said, Dad, can I ask you a question? And he said, the answer is yes. He said, I might not be able to follow up on that answer, but I will try. <laughs> dad, can I ask you a question? The answer to the question is yes. God knows, doesn't he? We have a father. So I think one of the most important things to understand about all this is that it's a relationship. But it's not a relationship in a small way. It's not a relationship in a cute way, in a cozy way. It's a relationship which has intergalactic scope. Jesus himself says, quoting Isaiah, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. So yes, it is a relationship, but it's a relationship that sits within a context of intergalactic vision. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. It's huge. The kingdom is huge. Let's just do a quick biblical overview. When, uh, can you flip through the the slides to uh, Abraham? And uh, Abraham over here is called out of the land of Ur, kind of the Silicon Valley of that day. Technically very, very advanced civilization famous for its understanding of the stars. And God appears to this man he's chosen, Abraham. And he says, look up at the stars, which would have been the most natural thing in the world for him. Your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars in the sky. And through you, all nations will be blessed. 
So the, the ever-increasing kingdom doesn't start at Acts 2 when the Spirit comes. It's always been in God's heart. Again, through Isaiah, Jesus, uh, God shows this uh, vision, and I've just uh, looked it up so I can get it right. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be raised above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Isn't that glorious? Jesus, talking to his disciples in Matthew 28, Go and make disciples, baptize them in the Father, name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He says, go into all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit. Jesus commissioned before Pentecost, go to all nations. And then there's the bit that we live in. And then there's Revelation. John gets this glimpse into heaven. If you're a follower of Jesus, this is the part of the Bible that you make an appearance in because he sees a crowd around the throne that no one can number from every tribe and nation. So that trajectory has its fulfillment and it's huge. Prayer is a relationship It's intimacy with the Father in the context of a huge vision, a huge purpose, a huge heart, a huge power, a a gloriously unfolding story, which isn't about me in my small corner. It's about God's heart for the nations. And you say, when Jesus says, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, that is not a joke. And that is not a new idea. It's been in his heart. Let's just read from uh, Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, where Paul talks about prayer. If you are going to look up anything, this is the one to look up. 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And this is Paul uh, writing in a letter to the Corinthians from verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We don't want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us. As you help us by your prayers, 
Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in prayers, in answer to the prayers of many. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. Then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. United prayer is really powerful. Many will give thanks because of the prayers of many. So the fruit of the prayers of many blesses many. We know that the Bible teaches us that where there's unity, God commands a blessing. Where there's unity, united prayer, united prayer, explicit agreement. You might know the psalm, Psalm 133, which talks about God commanding his blessing. It's like oil dripping down the beard of Aaron. I never really knew what that meant. You know when an analogy casts more darkness than light? God commands a blessing, I get that. It's like oil dripping down a beard. Hmm? I was once in the Middle East with a team who were doing a short-term trip. And uh, there was probably 25 of us. And we were looking for lunch. And we found this restaurant, which was basically someone's house that they they make food in. And um, that's how it works. And... We were all like, welcomed in and sat down and given Cokes and took our orders and stuff. And then this guy appears who hadn't really uh, made an appearance so far. And he obviously worked out that I was in some way the leader of this group. And so without being able to speak English, he stood me up and everyone else is sitting on low chairs. He stood me up in front of everyone and he got this oil like massage oil. It was like, it wasn't cooking oil. It wasn't vegetable oil or olive oil. It was like a fragrant oil. And he literally poured it all over his hands and then wiped, wiped, (laughs) wiped my hair and wiped my beard in front of everyone And everyone clapped. (laughs) And he has honored me. I I have blessed you. I've got absolutely no idea what any of that meant. But I know what it meant. And so when I come to this, this passage about oil dripping down his beard, this is what I imagine. Some biblical scholar is going to come and tell me it's something completely different. That's fine. That's fine. In Matthew, we're told that where two or more gather and agree, 
they will have what they ask for. Where there's unity, God commands blessing. Where there's agreement, God says he'll give us what we've asked for. United prayer is really powerful. And continuing prayer, just to keep going. When God says that we should pray, we should listen. Now, obedience is God's love language. In that chapter about the armor of God, the armor of God is described, and then the first thing that's said next is pray in the Spirit. When we're told something like that, it's for a reason. I was hiking in South Africa once. There were about 20 of us, and it was a nine-day trek, and you had to carry everything on your back because you were going into the wilderness. And it was exciting, it was hard work, um, a lot of walking, I guess that's what a hike is, and uh, big backpacks, heat, and after about five days, we're trudging along in single file along this track, about 25 of us, remember, stinking to high heaven by this point, and uh, there's this old man on the road, on this little track, and this is the first person we've seen for five days, and where did he come from? And uh, one of the guys who spoke the local language got into conversation with him. This was something of a big deal, meeting someone out here. All the packs went down, sandwiches came out. And uh, this guy said, where are you going? So the map comes out, and this is the route that we're going to take. And he says, oh, yeah, if you're going to take that route, you're going to need a gun. What do you do? When Jesus says, you're going to need to pray, what do you do? When this guy says to us, you're going to need a gun, what do you do? Do you say, no, we won't. Ah, we won't. Or do you trust him? There were going to be uh, very dangerous animals on that path. Now, it just so happened that one of the leaders had brought a gun because he knew this, but he hadn't told anyone. <laughs> but we have to Engage with this stuff. If you come across, you're walking along a path and you've got a plan, and the guy says, That plan will work as long as you've got a gun. You're going through life, and you've got a plan, and Jesus says, You're going to need to pray. Do you trust him or don't you? Do you believe that you're going to need to pray or don't you? 
And you're not just going to need to pray, you're going to need to keep on praying. Pray continuously. It says something like 20 times in the New Testament that we're to pray continuously. You know the story of the widow who harangued the judge until the judge gave her justice just because she kept on at him. How much more wonderful is our father than that judge? We need to pray continuously. I guess the last thing I want to say about prayer is that it has to be honest. Psalm 62 verse 8 says that we need to pour out our hearts to God. You might not get this from my cool, calm, collected vibe, but I was a pretty intense teenager and uh, felt things pretty deeply. I was reading John Piper at like 13. And um, I can remember going through something in my teenage years, and I can't even now remember what it was. But we lived in Bournemouth at the time, and in Bournemouth there's a sort of a, a slight rise called Hengisbury Head, and uh, I can remember finding myself at the top of Hengisbury Head at three o'clock in the morning in a rain shower, screaming at God. God! Isn't it interesting that I just literally cannot remember what was happening in my life? But I remember how I dealt with it. I cried out to God. I cried out to God. And there was probably a bit of fist shaking involved from what I remember. I don't think I was very happy. But I knew that God would want to know. I knew that God would want to know. I love the honesty of some of the prayers we get in the Bible. I believe, help me to believe. Or David in Psalm 51, just pouring out his broken heart. Even Jesus in Gethsemane wasn't pretending. This is how I feel, but I will submit to your will. So, confident because we know our Father, he loves us, confident relational prayer in the context of an intergalactically big vision for the nations, prayer that's united, honest, continuing, praying with others, agreeing together, And all that's enabled because of what Jesus did for us. I recently spent a day at the British Museum. The guide was telling us these ancients, the things that happened in their life came from the sky. The sun made the crops grow. The rain made the crops grow. Lightning destroyed things. And so they worshipped the sun and the moon and the stars. And they would offer sacrifices to the gods by burning them because the smoke would rise to heaven where the gods were. But 
God came to us. God with us. And that little portable temple, the tabernacle, that had within it the Holy of Holies, that had within that the Ark of the Covenant, which is like God, the presence, the kind of wireless router of God's presence on earth. When Jesus came to reconcile us to God, that curtain was torn in two and he came to be with us. So that Jesus says in the Great Commission, and I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. And so our prayer is only possible because of the gospel. Jesus has done it. Whenever I'm praying, the first thing I say is, Lord, teach me how to pray. And then I pray. When I read the Bible, I pray, Lord, teach me what this has to say. And then I read it. God loves that. God loves that. Now, this is kind of separate from the talk, but I felt prophetically, um, I just wanted to share something briefly with you from Romans. I'm learning really to trust God a bit more with these little voices that I hear. So I believe God is going to speak to us. I was thinking about this thing, this unity, this togetherness, this range of churches across Scotland and reading in Romans 16 and was really struck by this heroic couple, Priscilla and Aquila. I feel this is a word of God for me, but maybe for all of us. It says, you might be familiar with this, this is the end of Romans. It's, it's Paul writing to those who partnered with him or commending them. So in Romans 16 verse 3, he just says, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful for them. And I thought, I would love to be mentioned when someone comes to write Cambridge, chapter 16. I would love to live my life in such a way that others, particularly someone with an apostolic gift, can say, Daniel, my fellow worker in Christ Jesus, risked his life for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Scottish are grateful to them. Not to think about this partnership however formal or informal it is, as a consumer experience. Not what does this person offer me? What do these people offer me? What does this relationship offer me? But I want 
all the churches to be grateful for who I was and how I lived, even to the point of risking my life. Not simply going to conferences. Not... Isn't that a more attractive way to live? Father, teach us to pray. Teach us to pray, Lord. Like my little son, Finley, help us to enjoy you, to know the joy of coming to you, to spending time with you, but not in a me-centered way, but in a way that lifts our eyes to all you're doing on the earth. Thank you that your house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Lord, I pray for unity in this room, unity amongst the churches, not lip service, not politeness, not convenience, but what Phil was talking about where you champion each other's successes, celebrate one another, give to one another, serve one another, take an interest in one another. Lord, teach us to pray like that. Teach us to serve and to live like that for your glory and for your honor. Amen.